Hi everyone, welcome to the Good Health Cafe. I hope you've got your warm beverage in hand. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Onika Williams. Not only is she a top-ranking urologic surgeon, she's also an award-winning author, positivity catalyst, and educator. In honor of Movember, we are going to be talking about men's health. Let's get to the episode. Hi, Dr. Williams. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Well, good evening, Nikita. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to be here. And it's a pleasure and an honor to be a part of you know, this great and very important mission that you have embarked upon. So as you said, I'm Dr. Onika Williams, and you know I could probably tell you a gazillion things about me that would probably take the entire hour, but given that this is directed to our, our communities, which are communities within, you know, West Indian communities, Caribbean communities, international communities, communities of color, then, you know, I'll give a little bit of a background sort of pertinent to, you know, where I come from. I'm originally from Guyana born in Guyana and um, grew up in Albertown. Okay. And then as a matter of fact, right next to for people who are listening who are Guyanese and have, you know, real history in Guyana, we live next door to Jim Jones. Uh, really? People's Cathedral, yes, in Georgetown. So my family and I moved to Barbados when I was 10 or 11 and I did my high school there in Barbados at Christchurch Foundation School, did my A-levels in um, at Harrison College, and then went up to Johns Hopkins University, where I did a degree in biophysics. And from the time I was about 13, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. So I was pretty clear on the path that I had set my sight on, and I really continued on that path as I had envisioned and dreamt of it. I finished at Johns Hopkins, and then I came up to Harvard for medical school. While in medical school, I also did a master's in public health because I really had, coming from the Caribbean, I really had a desire as to how can I make a difference in lives, just not as I see individual patients, but how do I make a difference to to communities and to populations? And so I did a master's in public health. And during my medical school, when I came to medical school, I thought that I was going to be either do something like OBGYN or I wanted to do sort of nuclear physics, um, the nuclear um, you know, medical uh, medicine doctor. And as I began my rotations, I realized that I really had an affinity and I, and I love surgery. And I saw in my travels around the different rotations, was able to really identify what aspect of surgery I really enjoyed and and that spoke to me and that was urologic surgery so I became a urologic surgeon I left when I graduated from Harvard Medical School I then went on to do six years of additional surgical training two years in general surgery and four years as a urologic surgeon and so after 16 years (laughs) from high school completed my training where I was then able to hang up a shingle as a urologic surgeon, I joined a private practice and then, you know, uh, have, 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 um, left that practice after about seven years and joined a hospital-based practice and have been essentially practicing as a urologic surgeon from, you know, probably 1999. I also, when I describe myself, I say that I am a surgeon, an author, a storyteller, a teacher, and a positivity catalyst. And so that is, you know, kind of the broad of, you know, all of the different of, of 
my passions. And then, of course, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend, I'm a community activist, I'm a scholar, and so I'm a scientist. And so I'm so many things yes, you are. wrapped up into one, but this is the multi-dimensional life that we all lead. None of us is monolithic, none of us is unidimensional. We all have so many gifts, talents, interests, dimensions of who we are. And so my prayer is always that God just allow me to fully express every single thing that you have poured into me for really the glory of the kingdom, which is how do I serve, use the gifts and talents that I have to be able to serve in a way that touches lives and allows God's love to be manifest through me. That's amazing. And you do them all so well. Could you tell us a bit about what are you what is urology for those who don't know? So urology is the um, surgical specialty that addresses anything that is involved with the urinary tract okay. and the genital, what we call the genital urinary tract. And so what is the urinary tract? So the urinary tract is are all of the organs and the systems that are involved in making urine. So it starts in our kidneys. Obviously, the blood comes flows into our kidneys, which is filtered, comes down into the ureters, which are the tubes that connect the kidneys to the bladder. And the bladder is kind of a storage organ that stores and holds our urine. And then when time is right, you kind of have these combination of signals and muscular and neurologic processes that you go to the bathroom to avoid and you eliminate the urine through in the woman, it's the female urethra and the male, it's the male urethra, which comes through the penis. And for the woman, the male the urethra is at the top of the vagina, essentially the vaginal opening. So all of urology then has to do with the urinary tract, as I described, all of the structures that support the urinary tract. So within our backs or the, what we call the retroperitoneum is the space where the, the kidneys live, where the ureters come down where they head into the bladder. The bladder is, and other organs in the pelvis are supported by a set of muscles and structures. So we are also, you know, responsible for those parts. And then the genital tract, we're part of that because the urethra is intimately involved with the genitals. And so in the male, we are responsible for the testes and all of the, you know, the prostate and all of those affiliated parts. In the women, you know, we're responsible for, you know, the bladder and the urethra. And of course, there's a crossover between gynecology and female urology. But anything that has to do with, the, with that urinary tract, with the genital urinary tract as it intersects. And what are some of the problems that people might encounter? You know, in the kidneys, it may be you know, kidney stones, kidney cancers, kidney deformities. Um, in the ureters, there may be stones and tumors that can go in the ureters. Sometimes the ureters are also either located in places where they are obstructed or there are other processes that happen in that space where the ureters travel that cause obstruction. So we're responsible for those in the pelvic floor and the urinary, you know, the bladder and the prostate and the testicles. We're dealing with cancers. We're dealing with levels of, you know, hormonal production that, you know, creates some of the secondary female male characteristics. We're dealing with, you know, women who have incontinence, men who have incontinence, men who have obstruction because their prostates are enlarged, men who have prostate 
prostate cancer, women who have urgency and frequency, you know, that gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, I gotta pee all the time. I mean, so so there are lots of things that are involved yes. in that urinary tract, the gentle urinary tract that are part of, you know, what I do every day. That's really broad, very vast. Yes. <laughs> and you say and gotta that's go. What I loved. <laughs> that's why you love it. And that's what I loved about urology is because, and it's neurologic surgery, urology, we use them interchangeably, but I really loved it because it's such a diverse field. You know, I could do pediatrics. I could do primarily male infertility. I could do just cancer. I could do reconstructive urology, dealing with women and just pelvic floor. I could do things just related to stones. I could decide I just want to do a robot. I want to be a robotic surgeon. I just operate first using the robot. I could decide I just want to do endoscopic stone surgery. I could decide, you know what? I actually don't want to be, you know, in the OR doing big cases. I just want to do office-based urology, doing, you know, office-based procedures and seeing all of the general urology. I mean, so there's so much and there's so many ways to intervene and what I also was very attracted to related to urology is that I am a people person. I love relationships. I love the interaction with my patients. And so I didn't want to just be a technician where someone got referred to me for a problem. You know, we're surgeons for a surgical problem, I fixed their problem, I addressed their problem, I did their surgery, I saw them once post-op, and then I never saw them again. I really wanted to have the ability to, for people who needed surgery, to be able to do surgery. If there are people who needed more medical type management, I could do that. I wanted to be able to have the ongoing relationships so that if I diagnose someone with prostate cancer and I take their prostate out, then I see them, you know, every six months for and then to every five, every year after a year. But I have an ongoing relationship with them. I really care for so many parts of them, of them, not just their urologic problems, but then, you know, they become a part of me, you know, quote, unquote, so they, but, you know, we have a relationship where we are almost friends, where I, um, you know, how is your family? How was your last Love trip? You, know, you lost someone. I'm so sorry. What can I do? I'm so, you know, so you really did. It becomes such a, a holistic type of experience that is something that I knew was very important for me. And with urology, you have the freedom and the opportunity to build those type of long-term, you know, relationships. That sounds like a dream. You know, oftentimes I hear, oh, there's not much time left in the doctor's office. You've got to be quick and expedient and get out. But it sounds like you really do take the time to not just say, okay, Mr. Smith, you are here for this. You're fixed and out through the door. But you actually take the time to get to know them and their whole life and what's going on with them. Absolutely. And that is the art of medicine. And I know for me, when I think of medicine, I think of it as the intersection of science and art. And because I think of it in that way, one of the things that is really important when we think about patient care, patient outcomes, patient compliance, it's not just about prescribing them a medication or doing surgery. It is what is their experience in 
your office in your presence that really encourages them, motivates them, and empowers them to really be an active participant in their care. And so I call that practicing what I call this kind of mindset or this process of positivity. It's really bringing, you know, an energy, bringing a relation, a way of relating with your patients that you bring them into this belief system that they are, you know, that they are just as responsible and just as powerful in their outcome as I am. And in really imbuing them with that type of, um, you know, level of just understanding their power within their abilities to um, impact on their own care and how what they believe and how their attitude has a huge, huge impact Mm -hmm. on their overall health. That requires that you actually spend the time. And if you take the time to invest in that type of dynamic, then it actually in the long run results in better outcomes for your patients and really their better overall health. What can a patient do to help foster that relationship? Do you have to crack them a little bit for want of a better word, warm them up so that they open up to you? I'm thinking particularly if a man walks into your office and he sees you, oh no, I I wasn't planning to <laughs> to see a woman when they said I was going to see Dr. Williams. How do you disarm them? That is very, that's probably one of the most common responses that I get when I walk into the room, especially with male patients, is, uh, oh, oh, I, I didn't know you were a woman. I was expecting a man. Oh, you look to me, I'm to be a doctor. Are you, how long have you trained? So I get that a lot. And really and truly, I believe that we all have an energy that surrounds us. And it is not so much in terms of what you say, but how you say it. And that people can immediately, when you are, you can be in someone's presence for a few, I mean, a minute or two, and you can literally tell, is that person genuinely interested in you? Does that person actually care about you? Does that person, are they really, really invested in finding out, you know, what really they can do to truly help you? And so it is as simple as, you know, whenever someone says that to me, the first thing that I do is that I I, I, I smile and I laugh because when people say that sometimes, you know, it could be either interpreted and received as being offensive. Mm-hmm. And so the physician, I could take offense, in which case my body language changes, my expression changes, in which case that relates to the patient, communicates to the patients already. We're starting kind of at odds. Yeah. With each other. And so my first response is usually one that is just, you know, I hear that so often. I mean, like that's the most common thing that I hear. And actually, you know, I kind of like being the surprise factor. I I actually, you know, I like that when sometimes you come in with a preconceived notion or idea of what you think 
someone, you know, is going to be like or look like. And that mold is broken for you. What it really does is begins to really open up a perspective that you might have never entertained. So it's an opportunity for you to learn. It's an opportunity for me to learn. And we can do this together. So don't worry. You don't have to feel badly about that. I have it all the time. And I think that, you know, you'll find that whatever you have to say to me, whatever it is that is embarrassing you, I have seen it and I have heard it <laughs> tens and tens and hundreds of times. So eventually what you'll find is that, you know, the, 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 the fact that I'm a woman will become, you know, less and less of a, 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 a block for you and 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 with acknowledging and really affirming that yeah that's completely I completely get it I completely understand just by meeting people where they are and doing so in a light-hearted way yeah and immediately sort of disarms them and it kind of invites them in to the experience. And I think there's nothing like being in a doctor's office where you feel like you're receiving an invitation to share with that doctor why you are there because I think that it is an incredible privilege that we have. And I really see what I do as a ministry. And so we have the privilege of being invited into the most intimate parts of people's lives. I mean, when you have someone, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't like, I'm, I don't like to generalize, but I can definitely say that, especially for men, part of their well-being and their identity is tied to their ability to perform sexually. Yes. And so, when I have patients who are coming in to, you know, with that as a, as, as their, their their chief complaint. They are really opening up a vulnerability. They are exposing themselves to me in a way that it is easy for them to interpret a response as judgmental. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times the embarrassment comes from opening this very vulnerable place, exposing this very vulnerable place that for many men is tied to their sense of worth. And so I recognize just the incredible, incredible privilege that it is to be appointed to do that work. And I take it seriously. And I want for patients to understand that I do you know, I completely get how much of a gift it is for me to be able to provide that service for them. And 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 so I, you know, I, I think that the way in which I interact with them, they are able to feel that that is where, you know, the mission of where we're my center of what I, how I care for them, where it comes from. That is a blessing to your patients. And so this is Movember, and so we want to talk, delve more into men's health and men's issues. And you started touching on that already. But what are some of the key men's health struggles that men have, the ones you know of, the ones you see? So certainly, if we're, if we're talking, I mean, in general, 
and I would sort of divide it with men's overall men's health issues and then men of color. Yeah, okay. Because I think that, not I think, that there is a clear delineation between, you know, certain health issues in terms of risk and, and, and risk stratification for men of color compared to, you know, non-men you know, non, 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 non of color or, or, or white men. So in general, the, the big issues that, you know, that men face with thinking about, you know, heart disease, hypertension, um, obesity, diabetes, in terms of we think specifically neurologically, we think about, you know, cancers in general, but urologic cancers, prostate cancer, I would say probably is, 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 is the number one most common health amends related um, of, of, of cancer and you don't have cancer in men. And so those are probably the five big categories when we think about men's health. Okay. Um, I'll stop there. Those are the big, those are the five, those are the five big ones. Those are the five big ones. Let's talk about prostate cancer for a little bit. Is that only an old men's disease as people often think of it? How young do people sometimes get prostate cancer and when should you start thinking about this and screening for it? So it's very interesting that traditionally prostate cancer has certainly been thought about as an old man's disease. And prostate cancer really has I think, two kind of different types of, you know, considerations. The one is that the prostate in men, we know, will eventually, you know, kind of continue to change and over time to where by the time you're age 80 or 90, if you were to biopsy the prostate of, you know, 90-year-old men, probably 90% of them will have prostate cancer cells. Oh, that's interesting. So the type of prostate cancer in older men, which is a consequence of just the natural aging of the, pro of the prostate, is usually not very aggressive. It is um, not very, many times clinically symptomatic. And we will say to many men, if for whatever reason someone has checked the PSA, which, you know, we stop checking after a particular time, let's check the PSA and someone who's 85 and they find that it's elevated and, you know, there's a concern for prostate cancer, we'll say you will more likely die from something else before you die from your prostate cancer. So there's that, you know, segment of the prostate cancers that really are much, much less aggressive and tend to behave in a more of a benign type of a way. Then there's a prostate cancer that occurs in younger men. And, you know, we have seen prostate cancers in men as early as age 30. Oh. And so this is where we really think about, you know, what are some of the characteristics that increase men's risk for prostate cancer at an earlier age? Because when we see prostate cancer at an earlier age, they tend to behave more aggressively. And so the risk factors for men 
who um, that elevates the risk of prostate cancer at an earlier age are men who have a significant family history of prostate cancer. So first-degree relatives who will develop prostate cancer before the age of 50. Second is we know that African-American men or Black men are, you know, 50% more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer within their lifetime compared to white men. And they're twice as likely to die from prostate cancer. And in the younger men, the prostate cancer tends to be more aggressive. And so, you know, we're still, there are still lots of ongoing studies that are trying to really unpack is the, you know, aggressiveness of prostate cancer in younger black or in black men related to the biology in that is the biology different or are there other considerations and other factors that create this increased risk of aggressiveness? And, you know, when we think about disparities in health there and the social determinants of health, those are some of the things that play into why black men end up presenting later with prostate cancer, which means that it tends to be more aggressive because many of those men aren't really screened, um, you know, for, for, for with their PSAs, where we, you know, check the annual check of digital rectal exams and PSAs. So, you know, Black men are less likely to be screened. You know, they're less likely to have healthy lifestyles where because of socioeconomic factors, when we think about, you know, we say prostate health is heart health. So what are the things that contribute to good heart health? Well, it's, you know, good, healthy diet, exercise, you know, making sure that you are, um, you know, paying attention to all of your, your numbers, your, your blood pressure, are you managing your blood pressure? Do you know what your cholesterol um, is? You know, do you know, are you taking medications that, you know, have been prescribed for you? Are you seeing your doctor regularly? Are you maintaining a good, healthy weight? Are you making sure that your diet does not um, involve too much salt. So, you know, what is your stress level like? You know, are you living, you know, the type of life where just because of systemic and structural exposures and factors that your stress level is higher? So all of those factors that really impact on heart health, impact on prostate health. And so we think that there are those elements that contribute to disease in, um, in black men and in really with regards to the prostate that contribute to this higher level of aggressiveness and later diagnosis that, you know, that we see with black men. And so because of that, um, you know, our recommendation is that black men should be screened um, for prostate cancer earlier, starting, you know, at age 45, that they should be making sure that they're seeing doctors regularly, that they're getting regular prostate exams, that they know their family history. Many times, you know, we don't know our family histories. We don't talk about who in the family has yeah. cancer. I mean, many times in communities of color, these things are kept, kept secret. You know, they're, they're, they're taboo. No one wants to talk about it. It's almost like there's some type of a shame attached to having an illness. And so because of that, we don't really know our family histories and family history is so important in identifying risk so that you can begin to be screened earlier. So, you know, that's kind of the long answer, but younger, generally, absolutely, you can 
see, you know, prostate cancer in younger men is important for screening to be done. Um, whether you have a family history or not, by the time you're age 45 as a black man, you should be having a digital rectal exam every year. And that is something certain even within Caribbean communities that there is a stigma. Somehow there's something attached to having a rectal exam where people are like, I'm not going to have anybody poke their hands up. My, you know, I mean, like there's just this <laughs> mental block. And so many men don't feel comfortable having rectal exams. And that is one of the easiest ways to be able to diagnose is there's something that feels irregular or abnormal with the prostate that then triggers you know, a concern that leads to additional testing. So seeing your doctor regularly, having the appropriate screening, you know, making sure that you're aware of your family history and really, you know, paying attention to knowing, you know, your statistics, your, you know, what is your blood pressure? What are your, you know, cholesterol levels? Managing your weight, being intentional about eating well, exercising, knowing, you know, how to really lower stress, quitting smoking, knowing what your blood sugar levels are and diabetes. So there's so many, I mean, there's really probably 10 numbers that you need to be aware of as you think about what are the ways that I can really be on top of, you know, these things within my health. Yeah, I heard you say rectal exam and I thought, yep, that would explain why. Black men could get diagnosed later because that's not going to fly with them. They have to be forced in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's something that is very uncomfortable. And so uh, not uncomfortable as physically uncomfortable, but just the whole concept of it. Yes. You know, um, some men um, find just very uncomfortable. And so it is getting over, you know, those stigmas associated with certain types of the exam. And some people just feel, I mean, I think that there is a myth within, you know, certainly within younger people that young people don't get sick. That's all the old yeah. people that see the doctor. Mm-hmm. And so people in their 20s and 30s, like it's never, it's not a part of, you know, their kind of mindset that I need to establish a regular routine with my doctor. They feel like they go to the doctor if there's something wrong. And it is very, very, you know, I mean, we live unfortunately in an environment where we're exposed to so many toxins. You know, I mean, between the stressful life that we live, between the types of food that we eat, between the exposures that we have within the environment, we, our bodies are under much more, you know, kind of assault than they have been 50 years ago. And so younger people, asthma, when we think about things like lung disease and asthma, I mean, a lot of that are, you know, those are environmental um, factors that are, you know, kind of increasing. You look at the rate of the, of asthma among children compared to 50 years ago and you know it is increasing and so there's so many things environmentally that affect our health which really make it so much more important for young people to have as part of their regular you know daily and their regular kind of set of considerations in annual you know visit with the physician okay what is a prostate? I didn't ask you that. What is a prostate and what does it do? <laughs> so the prostate is a gland within the mid of the urinary tract, the male urinary tract, and it sits at the base of the bladder. 
and it encircles the urethra, which is the tube where the urine comes out, pees where you pee, when you pee out, it comes out the tip of the penis. So the prostate in encircling the urethra and, and sitting at the base of the, of the bladder, because it encircles the urethra, what that means is that people will, when we think about the prostate, we don't only think about prostate cancer, really more commonly, we think about prostate enlargement. So it is a gland that also enlarges over time. And by the time that you reach age 35, we say that we know that the prostate begins to enlarge. In different people, it enlarges in different rates. But over time, because it's like this walnut-sized gland that surrounds and encircles the, the urethra, as you can imagine, as it gets bigger, it squeezes on the urethra. And so in over time, that causes an obstruction where it makes it difficult for the bladder to really develop enough of a force to push the urine past the obstructing prostate and out through the penis. So that's one of the reasons that we hear about the prostate a lot as well, not just cancer, but enlargement. And the role of the prostate, so those is, is really to provide a, um, a fluid that really helps to support the sperm. And so the sperm are made in the testes and then they're stored in these, this tubing around the testicle called the epididymis. So if you examine yourself, and that's the other thing that men should be doing testicular self-exams because one of the things that we know certainly within young men and then in older men is that testicular cancer is another common male cancer that is very curable if it's discovered you know, early. And so we really recommend that men do testicular self-exams feeling for any lumps or bumps on the testicle itself. But if you feel the testicle, surrounding the testicle is a little tubing and that feels, you know, kind of a little bit irregular and it is in there where the sperm matures and then is transported to the urethra and to the prostatic urethra. So where it, it empties into the prostatic urethra where the prostate encircles the urethra and then there's the fluid that then helps to support the sperm and create the fluid that then is the ejaculate that then allows the sperm to be transported to the outside. The human body is so intricate. It <laughs> is very, very, very intricate and fascinating. So testicular self-exams are something else that people should do. Yes. Can you explain to me, explain to us what other common misconceptions there are perhaps when it relates to things like prostate, testicles, visiting a urologist in general, are there any common myths that you hear men say when it comes to their health and the visits? I mean, I think certainly the myth of, you know, it's only older people, you know, that have the problem. I think that what I really, um, what I really see are not necessarily the myths, but the fears. Fears. Okay, tell me. And I think that a lot of people don't go to the doctor because they are afraid okay. of what they will find. And so, if you begin to experience something that feels off, you know, for some people they're fearful of you know, finding out what that something is. 
And, you know, other myths are, you know, I think that people will have this myth of, you know, what, what the elevation is related to, you know, things like blood pressure and, you know, cholesterol, where the numbers are, oh, well, it's always, the myth is that it's, oh, it's always only elevated in the doctor's office, but it's perfectly fine, you know, when I'm, <laughs> when I'm not here. And so if, you know, if it's only elevated in the doctor's office, then, you know, there's no reason to treat it because it really is not indicative of anything that sort of products and that's okay. not <laughs> Um, so, you know, so that's one of the things, you know, that I hear. Another thing that, you know, is when we think about cancer, or colon cancer, which is another um, cancer that is, you know, affects um, Black, you know, men and women, but more adversely uh, in terms of being diagnosed later and seemingly being, you know, affecting younger and younger, um, you know, men and women of color. And so when we think about also screening things, colonoscopies are also, you know, one of the things that becomes a part of what are some of the, you know, the, the, the screening types of tests that need to be done at a particular age to try to identify things early so that, you know, it does not become a problem later. And, you know, there's also, you know, this type of, you know, myth around, well, you know, I'm not, you know, that if I get a colonoscopy and you have to go through the prep, that somehow it's going to wash out all the bacteria in my gut and then that's going to be a problem, you know, later on it's going to affect my immune system or, you know, that it, the myths are also, you know, that um, one of the things I hear commonly is, well, I'm not having any symptoms, so, you know, when I say to someone, oh, well, you know, we need to check X, Y, and Z. Well, I'm not having any symptoms. We need, you need to have your colonoscopy because colon cancer or prostate cancer is something that you need to be concerned about. Well, I'm not having any symptoms. So people feel that unless, until you have symptoms means that whatever, you know, is percolating below is not an issue. And so getting them to understand that, you know, by the time you actually have symptoms, is generally much later than we would want to, right. you know, experience it. We have an opportunity to intervene earlier. So just because you can't feel something or just because you can't see a symptom does not mean that the problem does not exist. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, blood pressure hypertension is known as the silent killer because there are really not a lot of symptoms until it gets very, very much out of control. And then you start either having headaches, you have a stroke, you know, you have a heart attack. And more of what happens with hypertension is that that pounding of that pressure against your organs, against your vessels, accelerates, you know, these arteriosclerotic changes, the hardening of the arteries, you know, the plaque that builds up that begins to obstruct the arteries. And so people will say, oh, I don't have any symptoms, so therefore it must not be a problem. So by the time you become symptomatic, it is really a bigger issue than it needed to have been. So that is without question. The age thing, oh, you know, this only happens in old people or you know, I'm not having any symptoms, so it's not a problem. I think are the two probably biggest myths that I've encountered. Yeah, not having any symptoms is a big one. You mentioned fear earlier. How how can we overcome fear? How can we get our loved ones through the door without, you know, get over that hurdle of what if they find something wrong? What what do you tell people? 
So I have these five habits of positivity <laughs> by which I live, <laughs> which are guidelines that, you know, not only these principles do I live by, and these are habits that I have internalized, but I also really share them with my patients so that they are able to approach whatever the situation is from this perspective of really feeling empowered and feeling encouraged. And the first habit of positivity is that there is always a solution. We just have to work to find it. And so if you go into a doctor's office with the belief that there is a solution, then you're less likely to be, you know, completely sort of paralyzed by this fear because fear, first of all, is false evidence appearing real, is that you have already constructed a story in your head that says that there's no solution to whatever it is that you're going to be going through. So you have already created a whole negative scenario in your head. Mm. And so you really, in not going to the doctor's office, you don't want to have to confront that or have to experience what you have already created in your head as the outcome. So if you avoid it, you figure it's not going to happen because you have avoided even engaging with it in the first place. And so if you come to it from this perspective of, you know, does coming to a doctor's office with a problem or with whatever your issue is, does it always mean that we're going to have an answer? or that we're going to be able to be able to provide a cure or that we're going to be able to say that, you know what, that you're, you're um, you know, a hundred percent, you're going to be back to the most perfect, healthy, you know, restore every single thing. And now all is well, no, we're not going to be able to say, well, what we are going to be able to say is that whatever the issue is, we're going to stay present with you in helping you to unpack the problem. So the solution is not necessarily about an answer. The solution is about the process of understanding what the problem is, untying all of the components of the problem. And then based on that interaction, based on that process, we can then establish strategies that are going to really provide you with the best possible opportunities to make whatever the situation is, a situation where you do not feel defeated, you do not feel hopeless, you do not feel discouraged. And I would go, you know, I would venture to go as far as to say that if, you know, if you are diagnosed with an end-stage cancer, where the doctor tells you, you know, you have six months to live. And, you know, I mean, that is really a difficult thing to hear. I mean, we're all gonna die at some point, but, you know, we have a vision of living a long life. And even when you live to 102 and somebody says, okay, your time is up, it still feels like, oh no, I'm not quite ready. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, when you have to kind of deliver that type of news, it's it's very, very tough. And to be on the receiving end of that, it's very tough. And so many times, you know, my habit of positivity number two is that when you are confronted with these type of limits and you're confronted with sometimes, you know, this difficult reality, what 
are the opportunities in that? Because at the end of the day, you know, I could, we could walk outside today and get run over by a bus. So none of us really knows the time or the hour. All that we know is that what we have in front of us at the time, we have the opportunity to make the best of it despite the dire circumstances. And so if someone tells you, look, you have six months to live, what that might create the opportunity for you to do is to say, you know what? For those six months, I am going to live it fully for the people, for the family, for the things that I have wanted to do, for the family members that I have wanted to engage with, for the things, the legacies that I have wanted to leave for my kids, for the letters that I have wanted to write, for all of, I mean, for whatever it is, right, is that you can focus and you can literally just wallow in all of just the negative emotion that comes along with this dire type of, you know, of, 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 of diagnosis, Mm -hmm. or you could say, you know, I mean, this is really, really awful, but all that I have, the only thing that I can control is today. And so what am I, how am I going to fully live today and take the opportunities for today? Not, not to think about tomorrow, not to think about a week from now, not to think about six months from now, but to live fully in today, doing all that I could do today. So if your doctor says, look, you know, we can try this, we can try that, we can do this, you know, today, this is what I can offer you. And I am going to come to it with all of the hope and with all of the joy for today. Amazing. And that's all that we can control. Yes. And so if you, and so... So if you essentially come into, you know, a doctor's office having that philosophy that whatever it is that they tell you, that we're going to work together Mm -hmm. to figure it out and that we're going to extract, you know, whatever the limit is, you're going to create the opportunity in it. Whatever the positive is, you're going to hold on to that. You're not going to just completely be weighed down by the negative. You're going to still find things to be thankful for because even in the most dire of circumstances, you can still find whether it's things that you look back on and you look back at your life and you're like, oh my God, but I've just had so many opportunities to do this or to do that. I've been blessed with this relationship, with that relationship. Like you can really look back and say, wow. I have still had such an incredible set of things that I'm thankful for. And then you know what? That I, you know, you have to have an anchor that is outside of yourself, right? Because at the end of the day, if we think that we are like in control of everything, that we are responsible for everything about ourselves, I mean, like it's a huge weight of responsibility to carry. Mm -hmm. At some point, we have to be able to release and say, you know what? There is really a higher purpose There is a higher being that really directs and controls, you know, a set of circumstances, which many times I don't even really understand how it all plays together. And that in this, that there's something in this that still will work together for, you know, for my good and that there is a purpose, there's an assignment. And sometimes the assignment is simply, you know, I've had many experiences which have been very difficult and devastating experiences at the time. And, you know, you give yourself permission to experience the loss, to experience, you know, the feelings of being discouraged, to to experience the hurt. I mean, we're human and we can't just walk around 
pretending that everything is always going to be peachy keen and everything is wonderful, that there are going to be times when life is rough, Mm -hmm. when you're going to be disappointed, when bad things happen, and you have to feel that. But you also, by using these, you know, these principles that I've talked about, you allow, you know, you're able to then create a perspective that brings you out of that place of real defeat and discouragement. And when, you know, you look back on that situation, you realize that when I am then counseling someone related to, you know, something that I personally have experienced, and I realize that in that moment, that interaction that I have had with them has been almost life-changing for them, that they literally have said, like, I never thought about it in that way. And you have just given me a perspective that I never thought of. And I realized that because I had that experience myself and I was able to extract from it, you know, and apply these principles that have become such a part of me that in being able to share that with someone else, I realized that the reason that I went through that experience was because there was someone else that would have needed that input, that encouragement, that testimony that changes the trajectory of how they think about themselves. And so, you know, we never really know what we're being prepared for and whose life is going to be touched and impacted because we ourselves have had the experience that we can then be that agent, that change agent to literally help someone else in their own situation. That's a wonderful perspective to have. If we think if we all look at our experiences that way, we would perhaps be less depressed sometimes if we think of it like that. This ends the first half of my conversation with Dr. Williams. We'll be releasing the second half in a bonus episode. We will dive deeper into her habits of positivity, hear a hilarious patient story, and discuss erectile dysfunction. For your convenience, I've placed links to her work in the show notes. Subscribe to the podcast to be among the first to know when this bonus episode is released. Please also check us out at thegoodhealthcafe.com.